1941, after the United States had declared war on Nazi Germany, round about the same time, the British Eighth Army under Field Marshal Lord Montgomery had their first victory over Field Marshal Rommel in the deserts of North Africa. Churchill and Roosevelt met in Cairo, and during the course of their meeting, Winston Churchill, I remember this was in 1941, four years before the war ended, Winston Churchill at that point said, Germany, Nazi Germany, is defeated. Nazi Germany is defeated. The enemy now is communist Soviet Union. If we spend all our efforts dealing with Nazi Germany and overlook the threat of Marxism, we will make a serious mistake. When Churchill sounded those words, he was really giving a message to Adolf Hitler. And the message he was giving to Adolf Hitler was simply this, Hitler, the writing is on the wall. You are through. It's all over. It may take a little time, but you are history. The writing is on the wall. Hitler didn't listen. The man who went to see his doctor, and his doctor said, you're 50 pounds overweight, you're smoking two packs a day, you're getting no exercise, your cholesterol level is astronomically high, and your blood pressure is off the charts. Was told, if you don't get your weight down, if you don't stop smoking, if you don't get some exercise and get your cholesterol where it needs to be, you are going to have a heart attack. The writing is on the wall. And he didn't listen. And he had the heart attack. I think we're all familiar with writing on the wall stories. What we may not be as familiar with is that the expression, the writing on the wall, comes out of the Bible. And of all places, it comes out of the ancient book of Daniel. And to be more precise, chapter 5. And that's what we're going to be looking into as we continue our studies on this ancient book of Daniel. Let me just remind you what had happened. Daniel, a citizen of Jerusalem, a devout Jew, along with other of the young leaders of the city, had been carried away into exile in Babylon. He had committed himself to the Lord, and he had served the Lord well in an alien culture. He was recognized by that alien culture and had done extremely well and was living and working in a position of considerable influence under Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar passed away, and in his place, eventually, came another king called Belshazzar. Belshazzar was different from Nebuchadnezzar. While Nebuchadnezzar was certainly erratic, both spiritually and in the way he conducted his affairs, it seems that towards the end of his life, Nebuchadnezzar clearly came to an understanding that the Lord God is the Most High, and that He it is who is in control of all things. And Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself and sent a decree to the uttermost reaches of the Babylonian Empire 
the one superpower of the day, he sent a decree to them, telling them his own testimony of how the Lord had worked in his life. Then along came Belshazzar. And Belshazzar was a very, very different person. And Babylon became very different under his rule. You remember that God had given a number of visions to Nebuchadnezzar. One of them was of a great statue. The head of it was gold and the chest was of silver and the belly was of bronze and the legs were of iron and the feet were of clay. And you remember that Daniel had interpreted that vision for Nebuchadnezzar and he told him in effect that whilst he was the head of gold, it was only a matter of time until various kingdoms would pass away and the only kingdom that would survive ultimately would be the kingdom of God. Well, what Daniel had predicted began to happen in terms of Babylon and Babylon began to pass away. There was a slow rot. There was an inner disintegration. And in the place of the one superpower, Babylon, another arose, the power of the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians had victories, military victories over the the Babylonians, and they were advancing on the city of Babylon. This was a time for vigilance. This was a time for men and women of principle to stand up. This was a time when they should be at the ramparts. This was the time when they should be taking seriously the situation in which they were living. But what we discover in Daniel chapter 5 is that far from that being the case, what actually happened was at the very time that the armies of the Medes and Persians were beginning to surround Babylon, they were having a drunken orgy. It's incredible, really, how people can recognize what is happening in their society and recognize what is happening in their culture. And instead of saying, we need to turn something around here, they simply go on living self-indulgent lives. Hard to credit, isn't it? But history has a way of repeating itself over and over again. During the course of this drunken orgy, a remarkable thing happened an apparition of the fingers of a hand appeared writing on the plaster of the wall. Incidentally, the ancient city of Babylon has been excavated. The palace in Babylon has been excavated. The banqueting room in the palace in Babylon has been excavated. And they have found white plaster on the walls of the banqueting room in the palace of Babylon. We know the day the month, the year on which this banquet took place. While the armies were advancing and the people were carousing, the handwriting on the wall appeared. King Belshazzar saw this and was absolutely terrified. The color drained out of his face, his legs began to shake and his knees began to knock against each other. He was absolutely terrified. He sent for the wise men and he said, if you can interpret this strange apparition for me, you'll be dressed in purple, a gold chain hung around your neck, and you will be given the position of number three in the empire. And they could not interpret the message. They could read the message. They knew what it said. They didn't know what it meant. It's one thing to read what the thing says. It's another thing to know what the thing means. 
They knew what it said. They didn't know what it meant. At that juncture, the queen, or probably the queen consort, came into the banquet. Interesting to note that she was not there. She came in, and she went up to King Belshazzar, and she said, don't look so pale, and don't be so frightened. In the days of King Nebuchadnezzar, there was a man who was highly regarded in this city. His name was Daniel. He was an interpreter of dreams. Send for him. It's obvious that under Belshazzar, Daniel had no place of prominence at all. And when Daniel comes in before the king, Belshazzar asks him, are you Daniel? Uh, Are you the one that I've heard about? Are you the one that they say has the spirit of the holy gods within him? If you can interpret this apparition, if you can explain the writing on the wall to me, you'll be dressed in purple and you'll have a gold chain around your neck and you'll be number three in the empire. And Daniel simply says, I'm not interested in any of those things. I'll be happy to tell you what it says. And he tells King Belshazzar exactly what it said. I will get to that in just a moment. But the message was a dire warning. It was as straightforward as a warning could be. And the warning basically was this. Belshazzar, you've had your opportunities over and over and over again. You have ignored the opportunities to acknowledge that the Lord Most High is God and you are not. You've rejected it. You've denied it. You've ignored it. You've tried to forget it. And now... Your days are numbered. Your kingdom is finished. This was the message that Daniel gave to Belshazzar. And that night, while they were having their drunken orgy, the armies of the Medes and Persians overthrew Babylon, and King Belshazzar was slain. And we know the day, and we know the month, and we know the year. It actually happened. You may be sitting there and you're saying, well, he talks about this musty old, fusty old story. So what? Well, let me tell you what the so what is. You deserve that. The so what is this. There are some very simple and very profound lessons to be learned from this story. Let me identify three things for you. Number one, the significance of the writing on the wall. Number two, the substance of the writing on the wall. Number three, the seriousness of the writing on the wall. The significance of the writing on the wall is seen, first of all, in the timing. The timing, as I've already mentioned to you, was absolutely critical. Great Babylon was on the skids. Great Babylon was in decline. The Medes and the Persians were in the ascendancy. The great golden head of the statue was about to deteriorate and disintegrate and another empire would take its place. And the great king, the most powerful man in the world, was suddenly going to discover that he might be the most powerful man in the world, but he couldn't keep himself alive. And the amazing thing about it is this. At a critical moment, a critical moment of this nature, 
we find not that these people are earnestly looking into their lives and earnestly seeking how they may handle this critical situation, but we find that they have simply engaged in behavior that as John Goldingway describes it, it was simply all about ostentation, decadence, carousing, coarseness, wantonness, and self-indulgence. There were three things that became very apparent in this particular orgy. Belshazzar, at one point in the proceedings, sent for the sacred vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple. He had brought the sacred vessels back to Babylon, but he had always had some degree of respect for them, not so Belshazzar. He simply takes these sacred vessels from the worship of the temple in Jerusalem and he begins to use them in his drunken orgy. You can let your imagination run riot and think what he did with those things, but this is the insult to God. I think probably what he was doing, he was trying to show a demonstration of power. He was very conscious of his own inner insecurities. And what happens with people who are conscious of inner insecurities is that often they will try to compensate by extravagant demonstrations of power. He's trying to convince himself, insecure as he is, that he's actually in control. Who is this God? What is this temple? What are these holy vessels? It's all superstition. What's all this about the Most High? He's not the Most High. I'm the Most High is his sort of attitude. Not only that, this particular event is characterized by an empty display of power and it is also characterized by a casual experience of sex. There's all kinds of sexual orgy going on at this point, which of course is what happens when people have feelings of inner loneliness and they're trying to suppress the feelings of loneliness. They don't want to get into commitment. So what do they do? They go from one shallow sexual relationship to another. And in the same way that they hope they can convince themselves that insecure as they are, they're still in control. They hope that they can convince themselves that lonely as they are, they can have some kind of meaningful relationship without commitment. And of course, there was also the drinking. The drunkenness was rife. And what happens is this. When people have an inner sense of pain and they can't cope with the pain, they will find all kinds of chemical means of chloroforming the pain and persuade themselves that the pain isn't there. And in this corrupt, failing culture over which Belshazzar is presiding with the enemies at the gates, here is this man trying to make a display of power out of his insecurity, trying to demonstrate that he has meaningful relationships coming out of his loneliness, and trying to prove that he actually doesn't have pain when he is simply trying to chloroform it by chemical dependence. And our culture is not far removed. Our culture is not far removed. And it's at this particular moment that the writing on the wall appears. And the interesting thing about it is this, this event that is readily understandable, the significance of it totally escapes them. 
Belshazzar wants Daniel to explain the writing on the wall. Why? Because very, very often in a culture, you'll have events and people sense their significance there, but they can't find the significance. They don't get the meaning. What is really going on here? And it's at this particular moment that God chooses to give a powerful message. And it comes, you'll notice, from a man who even the pagans say is indwelt by the spirit of the holy gods or is indwelt by the spirit of deity. Always remember that in every secular society, there will be people inquiring, looking, searching for answers that their secularism can never give. And in that secular society, there have to be men and women and boys and girls in whom the spirit of the deity lives. They are the ones who can take the simple messages of life and show the eternal significance of them. The tragedy, of course, is this, that the writing on the wall escapes so many people as it escaped Belshazzar. So much then for the significance of the writing on the wall. Now let me talk to you about the substance of the writing on the wall. I want you to notice that there was profound motivation on God's part for this message coming in this way. It's explained for us quite specifically. In the second half of chapter 5, Daniel comes before the king and having simply said that he's not interested in all the prizes that are available to him, he then goes on to remind Belshazzar of what happened to, to Nebuchadnezzar. Your majesty, Daniel says to Belshazzar, you have heard the story of your forebear, Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar had a vision one day, and I was asked in to interpret it, and I did. And let me remind you of the vision. The vision was of a vast tree, the top of which reached the heavens, and the branches of which covered the whole earth. And there was abundant fruit and nourishment in the leaves. The birds of the air found their shelter in it. And I was asked to interpret the meaning of this. But not only was there a vision of a tree, but there was a vision of a holy one who came and ordered that the tree should be chopped down, but that the roots should be left in the ground and bound by iron. And King Belshazzar, Daniel says, I interpreted that dream, and this was the interpretation. That that tree was the kingdom of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, the king. And that God had ordered that the time would come when the kingdom would fall and Nebuchadnezzar himself would be humbled until he acknowledged that the Lord Most High is God. Or to put it in the vernacular, what was going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar was that he would fall from his position of authority he would have some kind of emotional, psychological, spiritual, and physical breakdown. He would live like an animal until in the end, he would acknowledge something that God had been telling him over and over again. The message was this. I'm God, Nebuchadnezzar, and you're not. I'm God, Nebuchadnezzar, and you're not. And you will be humbled 
until you acknowledge that. And the moment you do, you'll be raised again because I'm going to leave the stump in the ground. And Belshazzar, Daniel says, that's precisely what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. And he learned something fundamental, and it was this, that God will not tolerate arrogance. God will not tolerate self-sufficiency. God abhors pride on the part of his created beings because self-sufficiency and arrogance and pride are totally unwarranted. In fact, the scriptures say, God says, pride do I hate. Why is God so tough on pride? Well, remember the two commandments that were given. Commandment number one, love the Lord thy God with all your heart and mind and strength. Commandment number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Remember? Now, what does pride say? Pride says, I don't need God. Pride says, I don't need to love God. Pride says, I'm perfectly capable of doing my own thing. So pride is actually a denial of the first commandment. What else does pride say? Pride says, I am the most important person. I am all that really matters. I am superior to all that's around me. And everything that is around me is inferior to me. Because I am number one. So I don't need God, and I don't need my neighbors. And I certainly don't need to love God, and I certainly don't need to love my neighbors. So pride is the breaking of the law. And God detests it. And he will do all kinds of things to bring people to the realization that they're not self-sufficient. They have no grounds for arrogance. They can't even keep themselves alive. And Belshazzar said, Daniel, you knew that and you refused to listen. Not only that, you assumed that for some reason you could live in denial of the fact that only God is God and you're not and that you could in some way or other get away with it. Not only that, you chose to set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. It is one thing to ignore the Lord of heaven. It's an entirely different thing to challenge him. Not only that, says Daniel to King Belshazzar, you then had the audacity to profane that which God has called holy. God has set it apart as being holy, unique, distinct, set apart for him and for his glory, and you chose to think otherwise. So here's somebody who won't listen to what God says, thinks he can get away with it, sets himself in opposition to God, and then has the audacity to say that what God has called holy isn't holy at all. Here are a few things to ponder. What have we done in our culture with what God says Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What have we done with the Holy Scriptures? How do we approach Holy Communion? What in the world have we done with holy matrimony? Belshazzar, the writing's on the wall for you. 
Because not only have you refused to accept the fact that God is God and you're not, you have set yourself arrogantly against him. You have decided that you're perfectly self-sufficient. You have declared profane what God says is holy. And you have refused to honor the God in whose hand your breath is. That's a direct quote from the old King James Version, which I rarely use, (laughs) but I like that expression. It impressed itself upon me when I was a boy. God is the God in whose hand your breath is. And I had a mental picture that stays with me day after day, after day, after day. Let me tell you about my mental picture. It's the hand of God. And resting in the hand of God is my windpipe. And my windpipe resting in the hand of God is being gently caressed between the divine thumb and forefinger. 12 months a year, 52 weeks a year, 24 hours a day, 60 seconds a minute, he's continued to gently caress my windpipe. He is the God in whose hand my breath is. And he's caressed my windpipe as I've needed to breathe in the jungles of South America and in the mountains, whilst I've been down in Australia and whilst I've been in Europe while I've been with the impoverished people, while I've been out in the desert, while I've been all over the world in every imaginable circumstance, one thing he's continued to do is gently caress my windpipe. And one of these days, he will apply such gentle, gentle pressure on it. For that's all that will be necessary because I have such a fragile windpipe and he's such a mighty guard and he will put ever a little pressure on it and he'll say Briscoe that's it (laughs) (laughs) and you know something I won't argue (laughs) no debate that's it. And Belshazzar, you know this. You know this. You've ignored it. The writing's been on the wall ever since the days of Nebuchadnezzar. You thought you could get away with it. And now the writing is really on the wall. You have refused to honor the Lord in whose hand your breath is. Well, let's get to the message. Interesting message. Mina, Mina, Shekel, Parson. Or variations on that. What we need to know about that particular message is this. The youngest child could understand it because it was simply three Persian words for a standard of measurement. So an equivalent would be dollar, dime, nickel. That was it. 
It wasn't the fact that dollar dime nickel suddenly appears on the plaster. It's his hand writing dollar dime nickel. The wise men can understand, hey, that says dollar dime nickel. And the people are sitting around and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Why do we have to have a hand doing that, writing dollar dime nickel on the wall? And the answer is this, that in the language there, you could take a noun and you could make a verb out of it. Now, I won't get technical here, but let me explain it to you. A friend of mine called Dr. Donald English came to America, and I saw him back in England after he'd been here. And he said, I had the most wonderful time in America. What a wonderful country. He said, it's really quite fascinating. He said, I went into a restaurant one morning, and they had a big sign which said, we serve breakfast at any time. So I asked for French toast from the Renaissance. He then said, and they told me in America, you can verb any noun. He said, it's not interesting. You can verb any noun. Incidentally, verb is a noun, not a verb. <laughs> so what do we say in American English? Well, we say, let's fellowship. Fellowship is a noun, not a verb. So we access things. Access is a noun, not a verb. But don't worry about it, because the Persians did the same thing. So they verbed nouns. So here's dollar, dime, nickel. How do you verb those nouns? Well, you've heard about nickeling and diming people, haven't you? No idea what that has to do with it, but I thought I'd mention it to you <laughs> while we're going on. The point is this, that whilst these nouns were there, the verbs that came from those nouns meant, and this is the point, the verbs that come from those nouns mean appointed, evaluated, divided. Uh-uh, now we're getting somewhere. Dollar, dime, nickel, appointed, evaluated, divided. Now, says Daniel, God is telling you, Belshazzar, over and over and over again, you have not humbled yourself. You have been self-sufficient. You've been arrogant. You've shaken your fist in the hand of God. You thought you could get away with it, etc., 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 etc. But your days are numbered. You who are appointed, you have been evaluated, and the game is up, Belshazzar. Not only for you, but for the kingdom. That night... That night, the army of the Medes and the Persians, because you see, the leaders of the country were in a drunken orgy, they walked in unscathed and overthrew Babylon. They went straight into the palace. Belshazzar and his men are no way in a shape to defend themselves, and Belshazzar is slain, and that's the end of the Babylonian Empire. And the Medes and the Persians take over. The head of gold is finished. Just as he said it would happen. So what's the point? The point, as far as you and I are concerned, is this. When God speaks, he's supposed to listen. 
And when God warns, you're supposed to heed. And when God sets you up in life, God evaluates. And when God says, humble yourself and acknowledge that I am God and you are not, you're supposed to do it. And if you go on saying no to God, one day God will say no to you. You got that? When God speaks, you're supposed to listen. When God warns, you're supposed to heed. When God sets up, he evaluates. And if you go on saying no to God, one day he will say no to you. And don't say you weren't warned. Nobody within the sound of my voice now can ever say they weren't warned. That if they have lived in self-sufficient, arrogant denial and rejection of the Lordship of the God Most High in their lives, if they have lived that way, they need to be reminded right now, once and for all, that unless they humble themselves and begin to appeal to God for mercy and grace and forgiveness, that having said no to God, one day he will say no to them. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The man who goes on through life saying to God, not thy will, but mine be done. One day we'll hear God say, all right, not my will, but thine be done. If you don't want me, God says, you don't have to have me. If you don't want my heaven, I am certainly not going to frog march you into it. If you're not interested in salvation, you absolutely don't have to be saved. If you don't want eternal life and the goodness and the righteousness and truth that's involved in it, but you want your own power struggle and you want your own sexual promiscuity and you want your own drunkenness, God says, be my guest. But he says it, with a breaking heart. And that's why he gives you the writing on the wall. And one more time, he's done it for us today. One more time. Don't go on saying no to God without admitting that he is perfectly free one day to say no. To you. Let's pray together. Here's a prayer that may be helpful to you, particularly for people who've never really come to the point of acknowledging the Lord. Lord, it's perfectly true that there's something about we human beings where, where we think that we can manage without you. And for some strange reason, we think that we can say no to you 
all our lives, and then at the end, you will, for some strange reason, say yes to us. But you've given us the ability to choose, and you've given us the freedom to choose, and you give us the complete freedom to live with the consequences of our choices. And some of us would have to say here, the Lord, that we have chosen to live in ways that do not honor you and do not obey you. We have lived lives that do not demonstrate love for you or trust in you. In other words, we've done our own thing, paddled our own canoe, been the captain of our own ship. We've seen the disintegration, we've seen the deterioration, and we've seen the results of it all, and we've simply gone on trying to drown the realities instead of facing up to the issue. But Lord, you've given us the chance one more time to hear that we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God as Christ himself humbled himself on a cross for us. So that as Christ was raised again from the dead, so that we, humbling ourselves and receiving his grace, can be raised in newness of life. Lord, that's what we want. We'd love to do it your way, not my way. We would love to be able to say, as did our Lord Jesus, to you, not my will, but thine be done. For we know that if we don't say, not my will, but thine be done, one day you will say to us, not my will, but thine be done. Lord, in the quietness of our hearts, we confess our sin. We acknowledge the saving lordship of Jesus. We gladly, intentionally, and joyfully yield our lives to him. That he might prove over and over and over again that he is God and we are not. Hear our prayers in Christ's name. Amen.